Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is The Guardian. What's furry, very hard to find, and dies shortly after having sex? Hi there, and welcome to Look At Me. I'm Ray Johnston. Here in Australia, the celebrities of the animal kingdom are the koalas, the kangaroos, the emus, the bigger animals that we put on our coins and let them go on bluey. So on this show, we're putting the spotlight on our lesser known, but no less deserving wildlife. Chris McCormack is here with me from Remember the Wild. Hey, Chris, how are you going? Yeah, good, Ray. Happy to be here. Uh, not sure if you've got any initial ideas on what we're talking about today. <laughs> well, the clues that I have, what's furry, hard to find and dies shortly after having sex, that doesn't really narrow it down, does it, Chris? <laughs> uh, but, well... Not in my mind, anyway. It could be a number of things. Uh... <laughs> I am genuinely struggling to think of even one thing that this would refer to, which is how pure and innocent my mind is. Uh, are you going to completely destroy that with this episode? Yes, I'm going to, as you said, sh- you know, show you something furry. It's difficult to find and it does have a bizarre reproductive life. So first of all, Ray, this is Dr. Barbara Wilson. She's adjunct professor of ecology at Deakin University, and she's an expert on this animal we're talking about today. I went to pay her a visit in Anglesey, which is a small town off the Great Ocean Road in Victoria. So Chris, this is um, uh, an important site for me because this is uh, where I first found and saw a swamp antipanus and where I first did my original work on their reproduction and their ecology. Do you know what's amazing right now? So I live in the country. I live in on Jaja Warren country in central Victoria. And as we as we are playing this, an antichinus just crawled out of a bush in front of me and is was running around running around in my garden. A different species, yellow-footed antichinus that come out during the day, but it was so well timed. <laughs> I still Listening to that even, have no idea what you are talking about. I have never heard of this animal before and saying its name is not giving me any further clues as to what it is other than it's beautiful. It's a beautiful, mysterious animal that I've, I, have, I, have, I have no clue, Chris, honestly. Yeah, it's not, the, it's not like the most common marsupial name you hear thrown around. You know, you hear koala, you hear kangaroo, 
You hear wombat. Antichinus. Antichinus. What is it? I know. What's what's antichinus? Who's antichinus? What's their beef with it? Should I be prochinus? Should I be antichinus? <laughs> well, they're amazing. They're amazing animals. And so, what I'm showing you here, this is a swamp antichinus. And they are one of about a dozen species of antichinus. And you can see it's kind of like a little mouse. And sometimes they do get called the marsupial mouse. Ah, see, I have heard the term marsupial mouse or just like little native mouse or native rat. How small are these ones, though? Well, first of all, um, there are native native mice and there are native rats and they are actual rodents but this is a this is a marsupial um so this is not related to you and i and don't take this the wrong way you and i are more closely related to rats and mice evolutionary speaking than the antichinuses i think that's amazing i have absolutely nothing against rats or mice so i'll take it i used to have pet rats when i was a kid i love them So we're looking at this tiny, adorable, it does look like a rodent, even though you're saying that it's a marsupial. It does very much look like a native mouse. It's got cute little ears. It's got brown dappled fur. It is absolutely the kind of thing that I would want to give a little hug to, but it would probably bite me quite severely. They're very bitey and um, they do like to have a bit of a nibble on the finger. They're... they're (laughs) They're related to Tassie devils. So imagine the Tassie devil <gasps> in mouse size and then deal with that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a little scarier than I anticipated. I'm, I am a fan of the Tassie devils, but I don't want tiny versions of them crawling over me having a nibble. This does look a lot more like a rodent, like a mouse or a rat, than it does any of the marsupials that I'm aware of. Where does it fit in the marsupial family? There's two major lineages or differences in the marsupials. The ones um, that we are really commonly uh, acquainted with, of course, are the koalas and the kangaroos, and they're all um, what we call diprotodonts. (laughs) They have a tooth structure where they only have uh, forward protruding bottom teeth, the incisors, which are really good for tearing up vegetation and that. The other lineage where our antichinus occurs uh, is the polyprotodonts, and they've got lots of little um, bitey incisors which are good for attacking insects if you're a little animal, or if you're a bigger animal, they're a bit bigger, um, something like a quoll, and they can eat other animals. You know, this is simplifying it, uh, but obviously a, a quoll is sort of like a big antichinus. Yes. Or an antichinus is like a little quoll. This makes perfect sense. That's I spent some time luckily in Tassie a, a couple of years back and I was lucky enough to see some quolls while I was down there. And they're such beautiful creatures. It's nice to hear that they've got relatives out there. Yeah, they do, totally. And, you know, if you so like what Barbara's basically saying is you've got these two major lineages of marsupial. You've got the ones who have the, the sort of the buck teeth at the front, 
Um, if you play with skulls and you're a weirdo like me and you like to look at animal skulls, then <laughs> you'll know that like, you know, kangaroos and possums and koalas and things like that, they have these kind of these these it's almost like buck teeth, right? It's like they're, they're really focused on those front few teeth. Whereas these other, this other group, including the dasurids of which the antichinus is a part, they have lots of little teeth. They're a bit more like us, lots of little teeth. So what I'm basically hearing is that these are adorable little marsupials that eat insects, potentially need our protection. Why aren't we hearing more about them? Why don't we know about them as much as we know about other marsupials? Well, that's a really a really good question. And, and you know, I think part of that has to do with the fact they're quite hard to find and they're quite hard to see. And like you said yourself, your first instinct when you looked at it was, ah, it looks like a mouse or a rat. And probably a lot of people might have seen one of these animals out of the corner of their eye, running through their garden, depending where they live, and, and just kind of dismissed it as the same thing. Funnily enough, where Barbara is working on the swamp antichinus is largely down at the Otways and on the Great Ocean Road in Victoria. And you can drive down there and one of the favourite things for tourists to do is pull off on the side of the road and take a photo of a big old lazy diprotodont sitting in the tree munching gum leaves, a koala. (laughs) They're so easy to see and that's why they're so iconic. (laughs) Laziness (laughs) has a benefit. (laughs) So there's a bit of rodent prejudice occurring and a bit of, eh, we couldn't be bothered looking that hard. Yeah, well, I think it's just people do, we don't know about them, right? Like, there, there are so there are actually so many marsupials in Australia, and it's really it's quite fascinating. Once you sort of open that door a little bit, you realise just how many different various marsupials we've got. A lot of them are small, but they're very diverse, very different in the things that they do. It's pretty amazing. Considering they do look so much like rodents, though, I mean, you just said that you saw one outside your window. How do you know what you're looking at? Well, because I'm a I'm an expert, right? I'm a professional. Fair enough. Fair no, enough. No, no, it's not that hard. It really isn't. Look, I'm I'm lucky enough where I live in the bush that I've got yellow-footed antichinus, and they are quite active this time of the year. And they they come out during the day, so they're diurnal. A lot of our smaller marsupials are nocturnal, so that helps. That helps me see them. But the other thing is they sort of hop around. They sort of hop. You know, you like video games. Oh, I would yeah. describe the way that antichinus move, at least the yellow-footed antichinus, as lagging. They sort of lag across the landscape in these bursts as opposed to like a scurry, like a mouse. And they sort of stick their tail up and sort of almost lag hop across the garden. And, yeah, they're quite, they're quite amazing. They're quite cute. They also eat mice. I've found them. Uh, tearing oh. mice apart. So, <laughs> oh wow, okay, vicious, vicious little guys, aren't they? Yeah, but they're they're beautiful. They're beautiful. So we're kind of getting the picture of what an antichinus is here, Ray. But one of the most phenomenal things about antichinus is how they reproduce, because it is bizarre. Really, it's a it's a bit <laughs> weird, a bit different. And particularly from the perspective of the males, it's an interesting life being a male antichinus. We're not going into shaming territory, are we, Chris? You know, shaming, you know? No, no, no. All right, just exploring. Just different, Ray. Just different, not shaming, (laughs) just different, as Barbara is going to explain. 
Okay, so Bob, hang on. Let me wrap my head around this. Okay, I'm a young male antichinus and it's coming into my first breeding season. So what's the first thing that starts to happen to me? What am I going to experience to start with? Well, at an anatomical level, <laughs> uh, your testes will have grown, okay? Is that the most uncomfortable interview you've ever had? <laughs> finally, finally my testes are growing. Yeah. How long have I lived for to this point? Um, 11 months. Ele- wow, so I've gone through 11 months of, ha- of running around with rather minute testes and, you know, trying to deal with that. And then all of a sudden this season hits and I'm like, holy moly, you know, something's going on. Uh, The testosterone levels will increase like about 30 times. I've hit super puberty. (laughs) So your testosterone's gone through the roof and now you're dragging around giant balls. That's what I'm hearing. You heard correct. Yes, that's right. I've (laughs) The voice, the voice has dropped. You know, the <laughs> I guess the extra chest fur has grown. <laughs> it's. I am trying not to imagine this as just you, the human being, <laughs> with like some type of makeup on that makes you look like an antikinus. I have a very vivid visual <laughs> imagination, and I am beginning to regret ever having this conversation with you. Yeah, I feel I feel bad for you. I feel bad for the <laughs> listeners. Um, we thought this would be a good way to explain, you know, kind of make it immersive, kind of put yourself in the shoes of the animal, they said, you know. Um, well, look, empathize. it makes sense. It makes sense. However, you may end up with some fan art. That's all I'm saying. Oh, hell yeah. Send in your fan art to The Guardian. <laughs> of Chris as a furry antichinus with giant testicles. <laughs> <laughs> Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. So, you know... Big testes, Ray, other than being um, nightmarish to imagine, um, they they tend to exist in species that have high sexual competition. It's, right. You, know, you, you could sort of think of, you know, think about it like you got a lot of bullets to fire, you need a lot of ammunition. It's as simple as that, you know. And so females are breeding with multiple males and they're sort of taking the best you know, they're somehow probably sorting through this mess of genetic material <laughs> and taking the best that they can get and, and kind of, you know, hedging their bets. Wow. Sometimes you need to take a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B and C to make sure that maybe some of your kids survive. Yeah. And I guess the, the most amazing thing about antichinus is that's all the males do. They just grow giant balls and sleep around as much as humanly possible or antichinously possible. And they get one shot because they oh. they die after the, after the mating season. No! The males do die from a st- 
stress syndrome. When they're reproducing, they produce high levels of testosterone, high levels of corticosteroid, which is a stress hormone, and low levels of a mopping up protein that will protect them from the corticosteroid. The testosterone makes them run around, very strong, compete with other males, compete for the female. Unfortunately, the consequence of that is that it affects their immune system. And of course, they've evolved to do this, Ray. And so one possible explanation for why the males are dying is so that they're not around to compete for food resources with the next generation. Oh, are they just completely spent? Are they just, (laughs) all of their energy is just gone? Are they just at this point balls? And once they're empty, they (laughs) cease to exist as creatures. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. I mean, effectively, the the you know the amount of testosterone and stress steroids flowing through their body it gives them the energy to compete in this massive burst of I guess marsupial uh, reproductive intensity, and then they die. That's, and that's, that's it. All. Their immune systems become compromised. And they they almost kind of dissolve and and you can find them in the landscape, sort of these bedraggled looking corpses of, you know. I think Barbara says at one point, sometimes they they seem to have a smile on their face. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) So how immediate is the death? Is it the... Everything is expelled and then that's it. It's instant. Or is <laughs> like it... a balloon bursting. No. <laughs> like a balloon deflating. <laughs> Farewell. <laughs> or, or is it more just a, yeah, we don't have anything left. You can't hunt for food anymore. You can't crawl over to protect yourself from the beating sun anymore. All yeah. you can do now is sit here with the memory of what you've just been able to do going through your mind as you exit the earth. (laughs) Staring at the sunset. It's, yeah, it's over the course of a couple of weeks, you know. That's horrific. Well, they do, yeah, they're not they're not like sick that whole time. It's they're doing the work that needs to be done, and then for you know a couple of days after they've kind of hit their peak, the end of their their kind of expiry date, they they just kind of fade away. That's it. That's it for them. I'm so sad for them, but I suppose they're pretty happy. That's what they've lived to do. They don't know any better. You can only assume that they don't know any better, don't know any different, and. As I said, Barbara says sometimes you find them with a smile on their face, so maybe maybe it's not such a bad death. I don't know. I can't. <laughs> I wonder if there is an offshoot of antichinus who have decided to be celibate in order to expand their lifespan. They're like, no, I've seen what happens. I'm going to live forever. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Sadly for them, they don't, have, they don't have a choice. They can't stop the puberty. They can't stop the super puberty. They can't stop it from happening. No. It's just, oh, I, don't, I don't think they, I doubt it. <laughs> they don't have the technology. Why not stay alive? Why not do it again the next year and the next year? Oh, it is that uh, evolutionary pathway that's selected in a species where it was a great advantage just to uh, reproduce once, not have the male present to uh, take away the food source from the young, enable the female to look after the young put all her energies into that. And um, it was a a pathway that led to success. (laughs) So it's removing competition. It's it's 
making the population sustainable in a sense. That's one of the theories, yeah, that, that it would actually make it easier for mum to find food for herself and the kids if he would just die. The only thing that would be more efficient would be just to eat him. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> it probably tastes terrible, just chock full of testosterone and stress steroids and parasites. Oh, yuck. Do we know what testosterone tastes like? Does it make things taste differently? I, I need know. to know that now for some reason. I'm I'm horrified by that need to know. We'll we'll move on from that. <laughs> well, apparently, apparently that yeah, that's why if you eat like game during the rutting season, they taste you know the males don't taste great because they I don't know. Fantastic. Don't know. So the male is doing the female a favor by just wasting away afterwards, and I suppose it makes sense because if she's got multiple babies to multiple partners at that time. You don't want that many men hanging around afterwards, nagging no. and asking you to make them dinner and looking after them and caring about their feelings. Good. Just go away, waste away, leave me to it. I've got this. <laughs> Thank you very much. Is that the path we're going down here? <laughs> I think so. I think she, I think as you say, she's like, I've got this, you know. Strong anti-kindness women raising the babies. That's right. So, as I said before, Ray, there's about a dozen species of anti-kindness in Australia, and the species that we're talking about here is the swamp anti-kindness. And when Barbara first started studying this species down in this particular region, the Great Ocean Road in the Otways in Victoria, it was a lot more common. Even though it was still hard to find, it was more common. And now she's finding that's not quite the case. Um, to our right was the population that we studied at Urquhart's Bluff, which was one of the highest dense, densest populations we had, but that's no longer there. So It's gone. It's gone, yeah. And it's, you can't see it at the moment, but it's a very, on a very drying slope. And so once the um, rainfall declined in the millennium drought, I think um, it was, it's no longer suitable. It was unexpected, totally unexpected. The populations were doing rather well in these um, sites and, and to come back and not find one was most unexpected. And particularly when I reflect back on why I started to study these species, I was interested in how they work, their biology, because we didn't know much about them. So that was the focus. It was never a focus on are there going to be population changes? So what makes a good antichinus habitat? Um, I think the antichinus mainly uh, um, occur in areas that have food available and very predictable, in particular in the southern part of Australia where the spring flush of invertebrates is, is, has been quite predictable. Of course, it means that this species and genus is now very susceptible to climate change and indeed we have very good information on the relationship of the species with rainfall and that we have documented declines in the species in this area in particular during the millennium drought there's a very strong cor correlation between a decline in rainfall in spring and how many offspring you produce how big they are and how long they survive Yes, evolution was a good selection for them at the time, but now we're getting climate change. They're much more susceptible because you can't reproduce again. You've only got your one go. If spring rainfalls are really bad, 
then the, the young don't get enough food and um, indeed the mothers suffer as well. One bad year and you can lose a generation. Yes, and it, it has become um, very evident here in the Eastern Otways. Many sites that had very high density populations in the 90s or 2000s, those populations, many of them are actually extinct. There's no animals there. Yeah, it's not the sand dune antichinus. It is. It needs that swampland to live. It's. It's interesting that Barbara said that the decline was unexpected because you know, we see so many other native animals where it's really obvious that their habitat is being impacted by human behaviour mostly. Did they just expect that these swamps, nothing was going to happen to them? They were going to be around forever? Is this a human-induced impact or an indirectly human-induced impact through climate change, for instance? Well, yeah, I suppose it's both. So, you know, like, first of all, yeah, obviously climate change we know is absolutely human induced, right? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Let's. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's, no, there's no debate. Um, but, you know, so. <laughs> no, and the earth is round. It may come as a shock to some people. So round. Yeah. You wouldn't believe how round it's the earth is. nuts how round the earth is, <laughs> um, actually. <laughs> and. It's as round as a pair of antichinous <laughs> testicles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, yeah, climate change, obviously, where to blame? And that is having the impact here. But the other thing is that, you know, climate change is this large issue that is connected to so many other issues that comes in over the top of things. Because where I'm interviewing, I'm talking to Barbara about 10 metres from the Great Ocean Road, which is a massive road that, you know, bisects all this habitat and actually fragments that habitat somewhat and makes it difficult for these animals to move um, in and yeah. out of their habitat. So there's all these other sorts of issues like that that compound. And then you've got foxes and you've got cats and you've got, you know, sort of these go-to issues that we know are affecting all sorts of um, animals in Australia and indeed elsewhere in the world. Yeah, if we don't have people like Barbara out there looking at animals, yeah, we, we don't know. We don't know what their future holds because we don't know what their present holds and their past holds. It's We need more Barbaras, I think is what I'm saying, Chris. <laughs> I agree. More Barbaras, yes. Are there any opportunities to rehome the antichinus, the swamp antichinus, to other areas of the country that may be better suited to them now as the climate changes and shifts? It's difficult, right, because like as, you know, as Barbara said there, they tend to occur more in places like southern Australia where we have what's sometimes called like a Mediterranean climate. You have more of these kind of predictable seasons because it's like, like imagine, Ray, when you're having your kids, if you knew you weren't going to be around and, you know, you only get one shot to have your children. My heart's breaking thinking about that. That's, that's horrific. These poor little animals. <laughs> You're having your children and you're not going to be around, really. You, you know, for the, for, the, for the male, you're certainly not going to be around. For the female, you'll be around for the first uh, month or two of their life, you know, the first little while of their life. Wow, yeah. And you need to know that both for yourself to feed them and then for themselves that they're going to be born in a time where there's going to be resources available because you're not going to be there to help them fight through that. So if that doesn't happen, you've lost your one chance and you're... you're bloodline, your 
descendants, they just don't exist. You just, your entire genetic tree is cut short. I'm so mad at you for introducing me to this adorable animal and then being like, and... Welcome to ecology. (laughs) Welcome to conservation science. (laughs) This is the joy. This is the marvel of the world. So other than reversing climate change, is there anything that we can be doing to help them out? Yes. Um, So it's about... Good. Thank you. Because reversing climate change is a big job that I can't do by myself, especially working (laughs) from home. Um, No, you can't do that by yourself, Ray. Absolutely not. Um, Barbara, as you can probably tell, is pretty determined and she's very passionate about these animals. So she is finding ways that we can look after this species. We have a light at the end of the tunnel. (laughs) We have found swamp antichinus, the few that we have found, in areas that we uh, think are refuges. So they're areas that are maintaining dampness and maintaining the food for the species. And one of these areas is the sand dune communities um, in the area. Fantastic. Bless you, Barbara. My heart is warm again. <laughs> I'm, I'm so pleased to hear. <laughs> and there's another attribute that we think is happening in these sand dunes, and that is that the rack and the guano from seabirds and, and everything that comes up from the sea provides very high nutrients in these sand dunes, and we've actually measured the available nitrogen phosphate in these areas, and it's like 10, 20 times higher than in the other habitats. So we have hope that the, the species will be, is being maintained in the refuges in the area. And that's one of our current research projects is trying to find where the habitat refuges are so that we can manage them, keep fire out of them, protect them from predators and, and things like that. So the antichinists there, they're fighting to survive. They're not just giving up and they've found these refuges where they've got access to what I'm hearing is pretty much superfoods. Yeah, superfoods, yeah, bugs and grubs and all sorts of good things. Um, (laughs) High nutrient dense. I feel like they're going to have a little offshoot of wellness influences within the antichinist community. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, we can only... Hope they die out then. <laughs> no, stop it. <laughs> as long as all their rice is scientifically backed, I mm. have no issue with actual wellness influences. Just don't try to sell me a supercharged light emitting thing that's going to kill viruses. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know what's amazing about this to me is We have a global issue like climate change that is impacting the tiny, tiny patches of habitat that this tiny, 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 tiny marsupial with a tiny, tiny, tiny lifespan has here in Australia. And then it has these tiny refuges, these small refuges within a massive landscape, and they are being fed by the sea. They've been fed by, you know, bird poop fertilising it and seaweed and all this other stuff coming in and that nitrogen cycling through the system, giving the plant growth along with the dampness and creating the insects and invertebrates that these 
antikinus need to reproduce and and maintain that predictable food source that they need year in and year out for each generation. It really does feel like a miracle that they've even been able to survive this and find these refuges to keep them going. They must be strong. Tenacious, right? Yeah. I think they're tenacious. And, you know, like Barbara, you know, has discovered this and she's found these trends and she's working with land managers to make sure that, um, you know, as she said, like fire management, we're burning appropriately. Let's not burn the refuges, for example. Look, you know, makes too much like sense, that. Chris. I don't know if people can stick to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Probably does make too much sense. But it's an incredible thing to me, you know. The, the Great Ocean Road is such a popular part of southeast Australia. And we have this little, almost think of it as like the grommet antikinus living <laughs> in the sand dunes down there and just like trying to eke out its existence. And yeah, I think it's just fantastic. It would be fantastic if more people can know about it and support the work that Barbara is doing. For sure. Support Barbara and support the beach bum antikinus so it can continue to be a surfer dude for the rest of its days. Now I'm just imagining them with long hair, little beach little bum. surfboards, uh, yes. setting yes. up little habitats, chilling out. What a life. Dying immediately after sex. <laughs> Don't have to deal with any awkward relationship issues. We can all relate. <laughs> so as I said, you know, Barbara, uh, she started her ecology career studying the swamp antikinus and then she moved to western australia and was a successful academic and researcher looking at other things and when she came back she's actually meant to be retired she was meant to be just chilling out but she thought oh, i might just have a bit of a sticky beak and see what's going on and of course discovered that they're declining and that wasn't expected for her and so you know now she's she's still going she's still going and she's trying to protect this species. I did think I may not never see another one. That's a bad thought. That's a really, really difficult thought. And I didn't actually handle one for a couple of years because we only saw them on camera for a while. How you say that's a bad thought, how, how does that make you feel to think that you might never see them or that they might be gone? Yes, it is. A, it is a, a really distressing thought. And, and many of us who work in this area, uh, you know, um, with endangered species, it, it's uh, it's a very sad, um, sad thing and, and something we all have to contemplate. I guess that's what motivates us to encourage people and, and uh, do the best we can in, in recovering them. Yeah, yeah. When we have winds, we're really pleased. So if we can find these refuges, if we can capture, uh, breed and reintroduce species, then we're setting people up for the future to have some positives outcomes and um, we hope that brings joy to people and some kind of fulfilment, yeah. <laughs> wow, good on you, Barbara. Thanks very much to Dr. Barbara Wilson, adjunct professor of ecology at Deakin University, for teaching us about the anti-kindness today. 
Look at Me is supported by the Australian Conservation Foundation. It's hosted by me, Ray Johnston, on Darug Country and Chris McCormack on Jar Jar Warung Country. It's also produced by Chris from Remember the Wild and Jane Lee and Camilla Hannan at Guardian Australia. Camilla also did the sound design. See you next time. <laughs>